This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. Boldly go where no one has gone before. Engage. Engage. Enterprise. Enterprise. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Captain Captain Janeway. Captain Sisko. This is Captain Jonathan Archer. Red alert. Photon torpedoes. Fire. The official Star Trek podcast. Engage. Engage. Make it so. With your host, Jordan Hoffman. That, sir, is illogical. Let's make sure history never forgets. This is Engage. Sailing frequencies open, sir. Hi, everybody. My name is Jordan Hoffman. I am the host of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. We did a live uh, podcast last night. Was anyone here for that? We had uh, Joe Piscopo gate crashed the podcast last night, which was hilarious. Uh, terrific. So we're, and I just found out with the permission of our two guests, we're actually doing another live podcast right now. Uh, assuming that the sound guy did press record. Did that actually happen? It did, all right. So you guys are all on another edition of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. And if you don't listen uh, to Engage, you can very easily by going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever, whatever you use for podcasts and just look for official Star Trek podcasts and you'll find it. So that's the story with that. Now, the other question is, who was here last night for the comedy cavalcade that was Ethan Phillips and his special guest, Bob Picardo? Uh, okay, that's most of you. And if you weren't uh, and you missed it, there'll be another opportunity to see the show on Friday. And uh, those of you who saw it once may want to come back again because it was a remarkable event. It was really a master class in telling jokes. Uh, so uh, I actually want to kind of, there's nothing less funny than analyzing comedy. But I feel like it needs to be done a little bit because what last night was like a symposium. We all should get college credit for what happened last night. It was really terrific. So without any further ado, let me first bring out two gentlemen that you know and love and need very little introduction, Mr. Bob Picardo and Ethan Phillips. How you doing? I guess, Thank you. Um, do you want to sit in a stool or a chair? Can I sit here? Yes, you sit there. Thank you. And, you know, I have a bit of a wide rear end, so I could actually use two stools. That's not a big problem. Um, how you folks, how you guys doing? Wow. Oh, there is one there. Boy. That's yours, then. I've seen younger faces on cash. God. I apologize up front. I, I uh, forgot to wear a hat, so I'm sorry about the glare. I don't know why. I, I, I usually uh, cover myself up out of respect for you. It's also because, uh, you know, as John uh, said last, uh, as Ethan said last night, they can see me, um, they can track my movements on Google Earth. So when I wear a hat, I actually go dark. That's true. Well, Bob's got a great advantage because he can comb his hair with a washcloth. I think that's great. <laughs> I love the way he makes fun of me for being bald. That is, 
That is how fundamentally disconnected from reality he is. All right, so if we're keeping score, uh, it's 15 love, Bob serve to Ethan there. That was very nice. Uh, well, you know, what was terrific about last night was seeing that uh, you two guys have known each other, really, for, for quite some time. Uh, what, when did you guys realize that you knew, oh, wait, we're going to both be on the new Star Trek together? Uh, that's a good story. We'll hand it back and forth. Yeah, go ahead. You, you start. To, um, uh, First, well, really briefly, Ethan and I met at a party in New York City in the 70s. He was in a, a very hot off-Broadway play called Modigliani uh, with the wonderful actor Jeffrey Damon. I was doing a play called Gemini that eventually went to Broadway. So we were two young uh, working actors, and we literally went to a party where a third person, I don't remember who, said, you guys should really meet each other. I think, you'd, I think you know. it was John Penkow, to tell you the truth. All right, well, you probably remember the truth. I just remember meeting him in the kitchen... <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I create the truth. He may remember it. Um, but uh, cut to, uh, I, uh, you know, we were acquainted for years. We were um, cast on, um, we were cast on the new, uh, in the new Star Trek series independently. In fact, we were in competition for the same role. I was asked to read for the doctor. I didn't get the doctor. I didn't, I didn't think it was particularly funny. There were nine lines in the pilot. He was described as colorless, humorless, a computer program of a doctor. Now, does that sound like a bucket of fun for seven years? So I said, I want to read for this other part because it, it was a bigger part and it was more amusing, I thought. So I turned down and I begged to read for Neelix. I tested for Neelix and, um, and ended up not getting it, never knowing that Ethan was up also for the role and that he was cast. And then eventually I went back and was asked to audition for The Doctor. That was the role I got. But I had a long friendship with a, with a director named Joe Dante, Inner Space, Gremlins and all that. And I was in discussion with Joe to do a movie that, that ended up not happening with Joe as the director. But I was going to be in the movie of The Phantom and play two gangster brothers. Two gangster brothers, right? Uh, I was going to do both parts using makeup or visual effects or whatever. When I got cast in Star Trek, I was no longer available and, uh, to do both parts, but I still could do one part. So I said, who's an actor who looks like me to play my brother? Ethan Phillips. So I, I called Ethan Phillips' agent, and I said, do you want to take over yeah, now? <laughs> you know, he suggested you know, that I meet Joe Dan Dante for this role, and the agent said, well, he can. He's going to be doing Star Trek. And, and that's how Bob found out, right? Yeah, and I said, no, no he's not. I'm doing Star Trek. And he said, no, he's doing, what part is he playing? I don't know, he's doing something. But I said, no, I think I'm doing it. Because <laughs> I, I thought, well, I assume we were up for the same part. And then his agent told me that he was playing a character named Melix. So how odd is that after being acquainted with each other? Well, tell them, tell them about Benson. What? About Benson. Oh, yeah. And, and our paths crossed uh, earlier. Um, when they added two characters to Benson that were played by Rene Bourgeois, another Star Trek actor who we love, and Ethan, were cast as the sort of Mutt and Jeff uh, team. Uh, one was the, uh, the, the press agent and one was the chief yeah, of staff. Yeah, was the press and, and, and Rene was the chief of staff. Chief of staff. They had those two actors tested for it, and what actor did they ask to test for both parts? <laughs> they couldn't decide whether he was the fussy nice one or the arch-cranky other one, me. 
So I canceled myself out. I read for both roles and didn't get the part. So I, so we had crossed paths. But then they had, you know, they had me read for the doctor too. Did you know that? I, yeah, I was just told you didn't look good in the uniform. Is it, was it your reading? <laughs> I don't know why, but um, I read for Neelix and, and uh, you know, I went on tape in New York City. I just did a videotape with Bonnie Finnegan. And, uh, and you know, they, you do those tapes and they send them out to Los Angeles and you never hear anything. But then a week later they said, would you come back and read for this other character, the doctor? which I read for, which I didn't get at all, and, and, and didn't get. But, um, but Bob and I, have pa our paths have crossed a lot. For, uh, we were both did a movie called Wagons East, and I remember when I went for an audition, um, I said to the casting director, I really want to read for the role of Ben. Was it Ben? And, and she said, well, that's been cast. I said, who got it? She said, Bob Bacardo. I said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> all we do is go. So I read for Smedley and, and God Smedley, so we spent time in Durango, Mexico. And he is the only, I mean, God rest John Candy, a brilliant, it's not his funniest movie, uh, but he's a brilliant, wonderful person. But to me, the funniest performance in the movie is Ethan in the movie, because he plays this, he's taking, it's a, it's a scene where he's supposed to be taking dictation, but he doesn't have pencil or paper. Well, that was, com that was completely improvised. It, it, well, it's it's with, hilarious. Um, Gaylord Sartain. Gaylord Sartain. Sartain, who was on Hullabaloo. He's this um, very heavy set, funny guy, and I'm his obsequious little servant, and the scene is, uh, uh, Smedley, I want you to take this. Uh, and we're doing the scene, we start, and, uh, and I go, There's, I, don't, I don't have a pen. I'll just, and so I reach over to his desk and says, I'll just use your pen. He says, no, you will not use my pen. <laughs> okay, well then, and I just said, well, I'll just memorize it. So the whole scene, I'm just memorizing. And the fucking thing is funny. It's very, it's, it's very, I don't know how he kept his concentration with you droning underneath him, right? It's like, it's as if Lincoln were dictating the Gettysburg, you know. When in the course of, when, when in the course of, 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 of human, H, H, U, M, A, no, I got it, I got it. You know, it was like, it was so annoying what and you were it's doing. It's so annoying. To and, the, then, <laughs> and then another time our paths crossed is I wrote a play um, called Penguin Blues, which uh, is published and had many productions, but very early on I wanted to do a reading of it. And... Um, I said to a, a very well-known casting director, Nancy Foy, I said, you know, I gotta find somebody to do this character I've written who's kind of based a little bit on me, and can you think of anybody who could kind of do me? And she literally did, there wasn't a skip, she said, Robert Picardo. <laughs> <laughs> I said, of course, Bob can do it. And you did a great, great reading of it. There, it's amazing, the, the, first of all, the, the fact that all of Star Trek's roads lead to Benson has been blowing my mind for 20 years. <laughs> When's the Benson cruise? I want to know when the Benson cruise is going to be. But uh, in addition to that, there was a, an interesting symmetry between the two of you in recent years in that you both independently of one another worked with, in my opinion, the greatest living American film directors uh, of today. A few years ago, um, Ethan had a very significant and poignant role in the film Inside Lewin Davis, starring Oscar Isaac of Star Wars fame. Hopefully some people saw Inside Lewin Davis. All right, a couple people. The rest of you all got to go to Netflix and watch it because, and this is sincere, I don't know if you know this, Ethan, uh, this year uh, the BBC polled uh, film critics and uh, asked what have been the best movies of this century thus far, and I think Inside Lewin Davis came in at like number 16 or 17. Are you kidding me? Wow. And had you not been cast, it would have been 85, you know, it's all. <laughs> so uh, it's a very poignant and sad film, but funny at times, and Ethan plays um, uh, Columbia 
professor of musicology in the 1960s. And I want to ask you about uh, that character a little bit. But then earlier this year, the Coen brothers had a movie which was phenomenally funny that nobody saw called Hail Caesar. Did anybody see Hail Caesar? Okay. Did people like Hail Caesar? It did. It was a box office bomb, unfortunately, but we loved it. And George Clooney is very funny in it, and Tilda Swinton is phenomenal. And when I went to see Inside Lewin Davis for the first time, I knew that Ethan was in it because it was in the marketing materials. And um, I go to watch Hail Caesar, and there's a very funny scene where, and it sounds like one of Ethan's jokes from last night, uh, an Eastern Orthodox priest, uh, a Protestant minister, and a rabbi walk into a studio executive's office, and they cut to the Eastern Orthodox priest, and they cut to the minister, and then they cut to the rabbi. And I'm like, oh, there's a rabbi. I'm like, what, what am, that's, oh my God, that's, what? That's Bob Picardo in the scene. How the hell did that happen? I was not informed. I know where all of my Star Trek people are at all times. What's going on here? And, uh, and it's just one short scene, but you kill it. It's the funniest scene in the movie. And um, I would want to ask you a little bit about what it was like doing that scene and getting that role and nailing that one moment and then working with the Coen brothers. And Well, there's even another irony that you may not be aware of. Um, both Ethan and I read for his part in Inside Lewin Davis. And we both went down to the wire together. They had me, we, uh, the expression I use is on the hook. Or in, sometimes Travis, they say, put a pin in you, like, like, pin you to the board and say, yes, uh, you're in the mix. You're, it's being decided. And I knew he was my competition. And we went, and, and they kept him for like five or six weeks, and then he got the part. And because we're best friends, I called and said, you know, uh, I'm disappointed, but I would, I, there's no one I would rather it go to than you. And he said, I read for their last movie, A Something Man, a Serious Man, a serious man and I almost was cast in that. And I feel like they remembered me and wanted to use me. So this is my turn. And he said, I bet since you got close to this role, their next movie, they'll remember you and you'll get it. And I said, yeah, right. What a, what a crock. <laughs> but that's exactly what happened. Yeah, and, and Bob did call me when I got... I, I, Bob is um, one of those actors who, when you get a job, genuinely feels happy for you. I mean, he literally beams and says, I'm so glad you got this. There are very few actors who do that. Most actors go, God, I could have done that. <laughs> How come? They go, oh, great, congratulations. Bob calls you up and he's ecstatic. He says, that's so good, you know? That's just genuine uh, well, But what, what did uh, you say to Bob when he got the Hail Caesar role? I said, How come I wasn't up for that? <laughs> So, but the Hell Caesar gig, that was a classic one-day gig, right? You're probably in and yeah. out in one day. And, and, and I, I had been called in to read for another role. There's a, there's a part in the movie that, that was actually a couple days shooting, so it would have been a little bit larger, but I actually think the role I got was more effective for me. Um, there's, a, there's a line producer in the movie. Uh, and when George Clooney's character is first kidnapped, and they say, how are we going to complete the movie? Then Josh Brolin's character, the studio fixer, suggests they use George Clooney's stand-in. And, and this, other, and this, produce, this producer, lower-level producer, says, we can't. It's the, it's the emotional peak of the movie. He's got to look up at, you know, at the crucified body of Christ and say, surely this was the son of God. We can't use, the other guy can't act. We just can't use some schmo. Remember that line? Yeah. I mean, that, that scene. So that was the part I read for. And the, the Cone brothers because they know their brothers and they know each other so well, they kind of scratch their chin and just look at each other. 
And they said something that's only happened to me twice in my entire career while you're auditioning. They said, we really want you in the movie. <laughs> Which, the, the, the dot, dot, dot was, but not in this role. Right. So they're scratching their chin going, we really want you in the movie. And then they turned and they looked at each other, said nothing and went like this. And they said, without a word, would you look at this? And handed me the signs, sides for the rabbi. Now, remember, I'm, I'm a practicing Roman Catholic. Doesn't mean I can't be a rabbi. I've got a million Jewish actor friends who did call me and say, how the hell did you get that role? <laughs> and I said, you know what it is? Um, I was the most miserable looking actor they saw that day. I looked unhappier than anyone else. You couldn't fake that kind of unhappiness. So, and I think that's why they, I was just in a bad mood and I looked very dour and unhappy and apparently that's what, but uh, obviously with seven years of Star Trek under my belt, right? Remember the doctor was extremely judgmental and if you did something he didn't like, no one could roll his eyes like you had just farted at the dinner table the way the doctor could, right? It's like, so, it's like the, um, what's the difference between a, a Jewish pessimist and a Jewish optimist? The Jewish pessimist says, oh, it couldn't get worse. And the Jewish optimist says, yes, it could. <laughs> but those, um, those things in the... My, my favorite audition story, I have two favorite audition stories because you were talking about the audition. One was I was, went to see this uh, audition for a movie and the uh, director was looking at my resume and he said, ooh, he says, you work with some very good directors. And I said to him, your name can be on there too. <laughs> 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 and I did not get the role. Um, Engage pod listeners. Listen to me. Blueapron.com is the way to go. Blue Apron is the neutral zone between ordering out like a lazy bum and cooking for yourself like a guy who's got a lot of energy. How about right in between where Blue Apron will send you the best high quality ingredients and a special recipe for a perfect meal for yourself, for, for two, for four, for however you want, and just the right amount of ingredients and top quality ingredients too. Not this garbage of all kinds of fructose corn syrup and whatnot. We're talking about quality ingredients and the right amount. I don't know about you, but you look at a, a recipe sometimes and it says, uh, you know, it says you need a little bit of horseradish. So you go and then you buy uh, a bottle of horseradish and then you use one tiny little teaspoon and then you got a bottle of horseradish sitting in your fridge for the next six years that you don't need. Not with Blue Apron. It gives you just the amount you need. And uh, the price is right too. So you, when you go to get out your pen, get out your pens and paper, folks. You got to go and go to blueapron.com slash engage. Special deal for the first three meals free and sh free shipping. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. You mentioned uh, the doctor uh, I always interpreted the doctor is, of course, a holographic reproduction of Dr. Louis Zimmerman. I always said, assumed that Dr. Zimmerman was, was Jewish, a 24th century Jewish man. Mm -hmm. Does anybody else just feel that way or never really Robert, thought about Robert it? Robert Zimmerman. Bob Robert Dillon. Zimmerman is Bob Dylan's real name. And so, but 
so you think I was hollow... Hollow Jew, yeah. Hollow circumcised. <laughs> that it was... A, or maybe they just simply upgraded my program. I, I, <laughs> I could not... I didn't understand why the doctor was anatomically correct. I mean, I had this discussion with our, our producer, Brandon. I said, if you're creating an emergency medical hologram, why would you give him a hollow dick? I mean, what, what kind of emergency medical procedures are you envisioning here? I literally had this discussion. And then when, when, the, when the episode with Andy Dick, excuse the, the commonality, the commonalities in my story, um, uh, when I brag about him, about having had sexual experience, I literally called the producers when I read that line and I said, come on, where did that come from? I said, look, we saw me initially activated in the pilot. We've been with me every week. When the hell did I get lucky? And how did I get lucky? And with whom did I get lucky? And he said, oh, it's just a joke. And I, we, actors don't like to hear that. We like to, you know, we like to think everything through. So literally, uh, that's the reason I ended up writing, uh, I got the idea, I wanted to explain how the doctor had upgraded his program and gotten a penis. So that's why I wrote a, 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 a Star Trek book, The Holograms Handbook, because I felt I was, I, op, I was obligated to myself <laughs> and to the audience to explain how the doctor had gotten anatomically correct. So that's how things happen. If you follow the logic, you know, we as actors, when we're given a role, we have to, we have to create the character's history for ourselves. We, and now the joke, of course, with a, a, my character had no history. It's the only role I've played in my career where there is no backstory. The moment he's flipped on, that's the starting point. So I had to... I had to envision a character that had a very narrow emotional repertoire, which was going to grow. Because unlike Data, who didn't have an emotion ship, the, the idea with the doctor was that he had these primitive emotional subroutines in order to give him empathy for his patients, that he would develop empathy. Um, but, he, but, but he would learn and change through his interactions with patients. But of course, famously, when the doctor first started treating patients, all of his primitive feelings were focused on himself, not on them. He was more concerned whether he was having a good time or he was being respected than whether he was respecting you. So I got to play a character with a very narrow emotional palette and, and, and very mechanical and then sort of grow into a human being in a way that I, it was kind of unprecedented. In Star, I mean, no, I know he echoes, of course, Spock and Data and many great outsider characters in Star Trek, but I'm the first one that was given carte blanche to really grow into a human character. Is that yeah, correct? Absolutely, yeah. And, and um, Neelix, in a way, was also... I mean, a lot has been written about what you just touched on, the outsider character, um, which has always been a, a touch point for a lot of the fans, Spock in his relationship to the rest of the original series cast. And uh, Voyager really had three outsider characters, the Doctor and uh, Seven of Nine also, uh, who was in a way very Spock-like and Data-like at times. But in a way, in a totally opposite side of the spectrum, Neelix is an outsider character. I mean, he's not a member of Starfleet. He's just sort of a scrapyard guy. But also... Um, you know, uh, you know, overly empathetic in a way, but not part of the team at first. So your character had a bit of an arc in that way. Can you maybe expand a little bit on, on how you saw Neelix at the beginning versus how you saw Neelix at the end? Um, 
Well, you don't really realize what the arc is until the, sh the whole season is, series is over, seven years of it, and then you see where the guy came and where he went. And he did start as uh, somebody who was very um, opportunistic and uh, in trouble and wanted to, um, to save himself and his, his young friend, Kess. And uh, when he got on board, he, he was very uh, ambitious and uh, made himself uh, indispensable, you know? And, uh, but over time, he came to love and care for every, all the people on the ship. And all the, you know, my, my backstory, but Talaxians were um, enthusiastic, ebullient people with a great deal of heart. And uh, that's what I thought to myself. So um, I overplayed him a little bit in terms of uh, the emotional uh, colors because um, everything else was so militaristic and so contained and uh, people were, were fairly rigid, uh, particularly uh, in, in, in social situations, public. And I just said, I'm going to take this guy a little over the top. And, they, and, the, and the writers wrote to it. But at the end, uh, um, you know, it was... Um, it was, you know, I, 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 honest to God, I, I, I just read the lines. I'll tell you the truth. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I do. I don't. I just imagine what's happening right then and there. And uh, and then I just let the costume do the work and the writing do the work, and I just try to invest it. And at the end, I, 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 I think he'd he'd become. He still wasn't. He still was opportunistic, and he saw a chance to leave the uh, the ship and become um, uh, 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 one of the one of the VIPs of this asteroid because of his knowledge having gained from being on the ship. So he went uh, to do that and he found a lovely woman and had a, had a family and I think he had some of the best closure of any character on the show. Did you say closure or clothes? Closure. Oh, because I was hoping you didn't say clothes. No, he didn't have the best clothes. You were wardrobe to look like a sofa bed. Well, <laughs> you're not too far from the truth because Bob Blackman would use upholstery, he used drapes, he used curtains. I mean, that's where he got those, those uh, costumes from, and they were very, very thick and hot. So you added it he to He must the... have really hated you. Uh, I love Bob. But, um, hey, he's a genius, by the way. He's Art. a genius. Uh, but it was Blackman. a very difficult character to play because you were really warm, really, really warm all the time. Well, they said it had to be a warm personality. They want to give uh, you the... Uh, 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 so in, in a moment, we're going to kick it out to the audience. If you have some questions, think of some good ones, because in a moment, I'll be coming out with the microphone and... Uh, Letting you take the lead. I but just want to tell you one funny story about please do. Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, if you don't know it, it's, 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 of all the movies I've done, it's my favorite movie. It, it's, it, it's about Greenwich Village in the early 60s, right before Bob Dylan came in and the folk scene took off. And it's based on a character named... Uh, um, Dave Van Ronk. Dave Van Ronk, who was a very seminal folk singer uh, uh, who... who um, was really spearheaded the movement that led to people like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and, and uh, you know, uh, John Prine and hundreds of other folk singers who all came out of that movement. And it was about his time in New York trying to make it. Oscar Isaac played him. And it's very, very definitive in terms of the period. Now, I grew up in New York and I used to go down to the Greenwich, Greenwich Village when I was a young teen and I used to see these guys play. And that music has always been a big part of my life. So, um, but Oscar plays this guy, Dave Van Ronk, who's a down-and-out folk singer. And a couple, the film had started shooting um, in, uh, I guess it was uh, early October. And Oscar, who is a really good folk singer and, and, and uh, guitarist and everything, he was doing some gigs in some of the coffee clubs down in Greenwich Village in between scenes, in between days he was filming, just to practice and see what it was like to be a, a working folk singer in Greenwich Village. And my good buddy, uh, Eric Franson, 
who is also a folk singer, called me up and said, uh, I heard you're going to be in, inside Loon Davis. I said, yeah. He said, have you started filming yet? I said, no, I don't start till the end of October. He said, well, you should come see Oscar play. He's going to be playing at the Gaslight tomorrow night. So Oscar didn't know me from Adam because I hadn't started. So I go down and I watch him play and he does his set and then he goes over to the bar and sits down and orders a beer. And my character in the movie is called Mitch Gorfine. And I'm his very good friend. I'm his only friend in the whole movie and he crashes at my house a lot. So, he does, so I go stand next to the bar and I turn to him and I say, Lewin? The character's name is Lewin Davis. I go, Lewin? And he turns, he says, oh God, I'm thinking to him, who's this, some fan who's got a hold of the script or something? He says, what? I said, I just want to tell you, I thought you were fantastic. That was just a great set. My name is Mitch Gorfine. I have a place up in the Upper West Side. If you're ever up there, we'd love to have you come over. And he looks at me, and, he, and you can see him realize, that's the, this must be the... And he realizes, I'm doing the backstory right there about how our characters met before we even got to the set. And it was really kind of one of those magical moments. Yeah. That's really cool. And we spent the rest of the night, we went over to Eric's house and stayed up till five o'clock listening to folk music and, and chatting and stuff. And then he had you arrested. And then he had me arrested. <laughs> no, then, uh, then when we went on the set, you know, the Coen brothers were like, do you guys know each other? And we said, yeah, well, you know, because we met and we told them they thought that was a big thing. He, he, he's, he, his beautiful singing voice, he's a beautiful man. Oh, yeah. How do you do a scene with that guy? He's so handsome, you'd fall into his eyes well, and dreaming. I'm, I'm very handsome as well, so. <laughs> As I said, there's a fundamental disconnect with reality. <laughs> Don't tell him he's bald. Um, so, uh, just getting a couple things I wanted to mention before we go to uh, the audience is um, the show last night, which many of you saw, but not all of you did, as I mentioned before, was almost like a master class in, in comedy and in how to tell a joke. And Ethan really, and Bob, who introduced no, no. it. I, I, mine was how not to tell a joke. <laughs> but it was very. There was one moment in the show where the joke telling was so fast and furious and everybody was so on edge and Bob got so excited. He's like, ah, this makes, I gotta I got tell a joke, I gotta tell a joke and basically ran up on stage, uninvited, mind you, ran up on stage, grabbed the Not mic. true, I had invited him earlier. No, he did, right. I would never do that if I wasn't asked. All right, fair I, enough, fair enough. Just, I expect, he expected I would be better than I, than I was. Well, the, the point is he went up to tell a joke and, and made a mistake in telling it, but realized it halfway through. And, uh, and then Ethan said, no, you're telling it wrong. And then he said, they whispered and said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he started over. And it was a wonderful thing to experience. But it's a joke I originally told him. <laughs> that, was, that was what was funny about it. I did not fail to disappoint. Well, I sat, I sat there... On the stool, and you started the joke, and you started because you didn't set up the joke. It started like the the joke where the where the Italian guy pulls over, don't get the punchline. But and I said, oh, he's not. Oh, he's going to tell that other joke. I thought he was going to tell the Pancho Villa joke. So I'm sitting there, and then I realize about three minutes in, oh, he's not telling that joke. He is telling the Pancho Villa joke, but he did not set it up right. And by this time, it was just too late to jump in. I said, you know, I'm just going to let him hang. <laughs> Uh, I don't think we could repeat the joke also because it was very blue and this is the morning show. It's the morning uh, show, that's right. But yes. the, the, the thing I want to make is that, you know, joke telling, there is an art and a structure to it. And um, I wanted to ask you, Ethan, because you, you, you almost gave a dissertation in joke telling last night. Uh, what are your favorite kinds of jokes? Do you prefer the weird cerebral ones? Do you, do you prefer the absurdest ones? I, I like a joke that makes people laugh and I don't care 
whether it's vaudeville, whether it's meta, whether it's um, you know showbiz oriented. But there is a, you don't just tell a joke. You have to know um, the key words, and you can't elaborate. If the joke is a guy walks into a bar. You can't go, a guy uh, wearing a brown suit walks into a bar if the brown suit doesn't have anything to do with the joke. Um, and and there's, there's, this perfect example is the penguin joke. If I could just tell this real fast, Bob loves this joke. There's a penguin and he's in a car out in the desert and his car breaks down and there's hardly any, anything left but he finally just coasts into this teeny little town right in front to a gas station and he gets out and the penguin says to the gas station guy, I don't know, the car's not working. And the gas station says, well, the guy, he says, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll look at it. And he says, Penguin says, meanwhile, he, he, Penguin's really hot. He says, is there some place I can get a, you know, something refreshing? And he says, yeah, there's a stand across the street. So the Penguin goes across the street and he says to the guy, give me the coldest thing you got. And uh, the guy behind the counter gives him a, a vanilla cone. And uh, the Penguin starts eating the vanilla cone, but he's a Penguin, so he's got webbed, and all of a sudden, it's all over his face. And he goes back to the gas station guy and he says, what's going on? And the, and the attendant says, well, I, I took a look at it. I think it's the gasket. Did you blow a seal? He says, no, it's just ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> now, people blow that joke. <laughs> because if you, say, if you say ice cream before the punchline, you will not get a laugh. If you go, so he goes and they give him a vanilla ice cream cone. Now, you've already blown the word ice cream. So when it comes to the punchline, you still get a laugh, but it's not a good laugh. So you've got to, be, when I get a joke, I practice it on my wife, I practice it on Bob, I practice it on a few people, and I begin to, but this guy, invariably, no matter how perfect I get it, whatever joke I tell, Bob goes, ha, why don't you say, wouldn't it be better if... <laughs> well, I lo after last night, you never have to let me do that again. Okay. <laughs> I, I write, okay. Who, who were some of your favorite... Uh, comedians or comics when, when you were coming up? Either stand-up or uh, comic performances in film or television? My favorite comic as a young man was Shelley Berman. Yeah. I found him the most anxious, nervous, funny guy. Uh, I liked Mort Saul a lot because I, he was very brave. Um, I thought uh, uh, nobody can touch Richard Pryor. Uh, he, was, he was phenomenal. Um, Dick Gregory made me howl, but he was also very edgy. And I had a, a very soft spot for Alan King. I, I thought nobody could beat Alan King. And uh, I loved uh, early Woody Allen. Um, and, uh, you know, guys like that. Um, but, uh, and then I really liked Bill Hicks, and, and, uh, who passed away. And, uh, I saw Robert Klein recently. He just, oh, he's wonderful. destroyed the room. It was He hilarious. is just phenomenal. Yeah. Just phenomenal. There's just so many great ones. But what, um, the comics today, I mean, it's a different style of humor. Like you were saying last night, you said, I'm going to come up and tell jokes, and comedians don't really do that now. Like Louis C.K., who's hilarious, his stage act isn't telling jokes. He... No. I mean, I just saw Seinfeld at, uh, at the Beacon last week, and he, he was, did 90 minutes, and he didn't tell one joke. He talked about um, all the observations he has in life and stuff. Uh, same with Louis C.K. I mean, I, I, Bob's daughter, Gina, and I go see comics, we, and uh, we, she's a... Uh, stand-up aficionado, I mean, she really knows what's going on. But what I do is just not done. I mean, because I don't do that. I don't, I just tell jokes. But they work, you know? Yeah, yeah. Isn't, that, isn't that sweet? I, um, I, both my daughters that are grown look at, at Ethan as an uncle. So my daughter Gina, who is a huge stand-up comedy fan, if I'm not around in New York, or if I'm not interested in seeing the particular comedian uh, she calls Ethan and goes to see the show with him because he's like, you know, 
He's like her uncle. It's, I think that's, uh, I think it's really sweet. Um, and I want to ask the same for you, Bob. Who were some of the comics that you loved uh, the most, either, either as stand-up or as performances uh, in film? Well, you know, as a young kid, I, I was, um, I, I always, uh, I loved uh, Bob Hope. Um, I, uh, I had, I, I was fascinated by Jack Benny because of the time he took. And that something that didn't seem funny would grow into being funny by his, uh, by his timing and the way he would draw you out. Um, uh, I, uh, I loved Richard Lewis when he was really, really young, that high, you know, I, it was fun. That was what was fun about working on Wagon's East because I got to hang out with Richard Lewis and get driven an hour each way to the location and he never stopped talking. He would like, it was like he was performing all the time. Richards had great, you know, like uh, my, you know, he was, he was always, I, I can't do it at all, but it was like, you know, my, my family, you know, uh, my, my mother had a satellite dish so we could pick up other, other people's problems, you know, that, that kind of, I, but he would, it literally was nonstop. It was like, it, it was like he was a little tortured if he didn't let it out. Is that right? That kind of, I have to say this. Um, performance, which is very funny, but I don't, I mean, Ethan is a real, is in a very accomplished joke teller. I love jokes, but I am, I am, uh, what I prefer is always to tell jokes that are in a character voice. I would rather tell a jokes where, where you have to act it out and if, and hopefully do, do a, do a funny <laughs> voice. Those are my favorite ones. You know, I mean, the, the one last night, which I also blew, but where um, St. Peter at the Gates of Heaven and, and the Old Man and that one, because I love the sound of the voice. The punchline's not that good, but, you know, with, with Jesus looking into an old man's eyes when he finds out he's a carpenter and the old man, and he says, Jesus says, Father, and the old man says, Pinocchio! <laughs> I just like the sound of that, of the punchline. <laughs> we were talking about meta jokes backstage. About what? Meta jokes, oh. which are jokes that um, don't, uh, I, I, it's, they're hard to describe. Jokes about jokes. Uh, jokes about J jokes. Jokes or, that you, you, yeah. they're making fun of the fact that you think something's going to be funny. Yeah, um, and I was telling Jordan the one where the, but it made me think of Fred Allen, believe it or not, was a great joke teller, writer. But he wrote a joke I loved where he said it was so windy he saw a chicken lay the same egg twice. <laughs> Makes no sense. It doesn't mean that it's windy or not, but he, 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 knew how, he knew the rhythm so well. We used to do that on Benson where I'd, I'd have a joke and I'd say to the writers, I'm not sure I understand the joke. And the, I remember Bob Frazier was a great, great comedy writer and he said to me, it doesn't matter, it makes a noise that sounds like a joke. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll bet, and he would bet me 10 bucks the audience would laugh, and they would laugh. But the joke made no sense. <laughs> so Bob's show, excuse me, Ethan's show is going to be again on Friday. You must see it. And also, I believe on Friday as well, you're leading a talk with um, Commander Rick Searfoss. Well, no, I'm actually doing one today. today what did I say about today? today I, I don't I listen to Jordan or anything he's saying. Did anybody see um, Colonel Searfoss on Monday here in this room? Okay, so you saw it. So we are in, uh, in 13, what's it called? 13 forward. 13 forward at, from 1 to 2 o'clock, and I will we'll be talking about the future of space exploration. Um, uh, I met Rick along with uh, Ethan. We, we've known Rick, uh, made many appearances with him. 
uh, 10, 12, 15 years ago. He's a terrific speaker. And uh, as you know, a shuttle pilot, a colonel, uh, still uh, flying today in, uh, in fight, you know, teaching people how to drive, uh, fly, drive, fly uh, <laughs> different kinds of jets, uh, fighter jets, et cetera. He's a really cool guy. And I also want to give a plug to a nonprofit that I'm involved in, if you don't know. It's called the Planetary Society. Yeah. Um, I have, I do a monthly uh, video. I'm going to leave some cards. I hope you'll come up and take a card, all it is is my picture, and it'll tell you how to connect with the Planetary Post, my monthly video that's about five minutes long that tells you what I think is cool that's happening in space exploration right now. The, the, thank you. The Planetary Society was founded by Carl Sagan, co-founded uh, by Carl Sagan uh, in, uh, um, let me see, 1980, and, uh, and now it's run by Bill Nye the Science Guy. So. <laughs> If you don't already, we'll check it out. My, my theory is if you are a science fiction fan, you are also a science fan, whether you know it or not. Yes, I just want to say, if you don't already uh, get the Planetary Post monthly email, it's, it's a blast to go to your inbox and, and get a, a message from Bob. And just to reiterate, the, the gig he's doing later today uh, is very different from the show that... Uh, Rick Searfoss and, and I did. So uh, if you think, ah, I saw him talk already, it's different topics. So, uh, and since he'll be hosting it, it'll be much funnier. But you had a... Oh, I just, as long as we're plugging charities, I'll plug my charity, which I don't have anything for, but you can look it up online. It's called GEMS, G-E-M-S, GEMS. And it's an outfit in Harlem in New York uh, run by a woman named Rachel Lloyd. And what they do is they... You donate money to them, and they use 90% of that money to take little children who have been trafficked, sex trafficked, and they take them off the street, and they put them in this home, and they give them education and clothing, and they help them get started again. And it's just a little way to help fight that uh, unbelievably evil uh, uh, thing that happens on our planet today. Um, so it's gems.org? Gems yeah. If you look up capital G-E-M-S... And, uh, you know, you send him 10 bucks and you're giving a kid a couple of meals for a week. You know, it's kind of cool. And uh, so anyway, that's that. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, Engage. the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. So we're going to go out to the audience, and I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to descend the stage. I'm going to try to walk down the stairs without falling down. Good luck, Jordan. And I think, is there somebody upstairs with a microphone, too? Because we've been, uh, this whole time when we've done audience uh, Q&As, it's always the downstairs people. The upstairs people get shafted. So does anybody have a question? We, why don't we start upstairs? Who's got a question upstairs? Well, you know what? I just realized with the lights, I can't see upstairs. <laughs> So uh, I'm going to take it on faith that the, whoever's holding the microphone upstairs, I uh, encourage you, I think I see what is a human form. Either that, it's from episode, uh, The Day of the Dove, season three. It's that marble of light that's coming. Some, here we go, question from the stairs. Yeah, um, I want to say thanks for everyone for coming out and supporting us. It's been a blast. My question to you is, um, you both were on the fourth incarnation of Star Trek. And by that time, the whole um, Star Trek convention culture and everything had been established. Did you guys get any warning ahead of time or 
any suggestion? Hey, if you take this role on, it's going to have a life of its own, a whole lifetime, and anything um, like that? I, uh, I told you that I had a... Uh, when I first got my, uh, the phone call from my agent that I got the role, he said, you also got your two, first two convention offers. <laughs> there were outstanding offers for whomever got the role of... Uh, the new roles on the show. I think this happened with all the actors. Uh, we were warned, um, uh, warned, we were prepped <laughs> so wonderfully by Armin Shimmerman, who guest starred in the pilot of Voyager. And Armin basically took each of us under his wing and said, here's what's going to happen to you. And it was so warm and wonderful. And he just, I felt, because really, it, Star Trek is a phenomenon that is that is in full swing at the time that we premiered had already been close to 30 years, like 28 or 29 years. What I described to people when our show premiered, you know, joining the Star Trek franchise, the moment the show premiered, it was like you were boarding a bus that was already gone 80 miles an hour. It was a shock. Once the pilot came and, and everybody had seen us and everybody had apparently, you know, I mean, whether you like Voyager the most, or it ranks fifth in your Star Trek series, you still watched it if you were a Star Trek fan. Even if you wanted to spend the rest of the week expressing your distaste <laughs> for, the new, for the newest incarnation of Star Trek, you just still watched it. So everybody had opinions of us after the first airing. Suddenly we went from, oh, that actor, I saw him in China Beach or in Benson or whatever. Suddenly we were a character in Star Trek and everyone was discussing and formulating and, you know, ruminating over us. So that, that moment of jumping on the bus was a shock, but it was a very nice ride after that. <laughs> well, yeah, mainly because Star Trek fans are the least cynical people in the world. And that makes it very easy to interact because they are just uh, believe that there is a future. It's, it's, uh, makes a big difference. And they believe that there's a future because we're all one. Uh, and, and not to get collectivist or anything, but uh, it doesn't matter what you look like. It's what is the right action that you perform. And that, that's what matters. So it's an easy, it's a, it's, we're lucky, you know, we're not, it's not fans of uh, Saw, you know? <laughs> okay, I think we have a question over here. By the way, Saw, you know, it's funny, there, and I'm not joking, there is a Saw cruise. I swear to you, but they don't get the whole ship, because a friend of mine, I swear to God, took his fiance on a cruise from New York up to Nova Scotia, and he started realizing there's a lot of like goths on board and like people who, you know, dress like vampires and stuff. And then there was a PA announcement, everyone that's here for the Saw uh, autograph. And they're like, oh my God, we're on the Saw cruise. What, what the hell's gonna happen on this thing? So, uh, yeah. what is Formal yeah, Night I, I on know the Saw the, cruise? I know the guy, who is the guy with the lead? Uh, um, Tobin Bell. Tobin Bell, yeah. as you know, was Robbie's brother in law. And uh, Tobin was a successful regional theater actor who, you know, did a f episodic TV, but nobody knew who the hell Tobin Bell was, and he got cast in that thing, and his, his life just changed overnight. because he he, was... We're, uh, we're going to see him in, uh, next time we dock. His boat will be there, too, I guess. I don't oh, really? Know. No, I'm joking. Oh. I'm joking. Are we, are we, are we going to bump into the Saw Cruise? No, yeah. I, saw, I really am. Yeah. Okay, we have a question over here. Ren, tell us where you're from. I'm from Connecticut, Woodbridge, Connecticut. 
Uh, you're both wonderful, right outside of New Haven, uh, near your alma mater. Uh, you're both wonderful, and thank you so much for your performances and sharing your experiences with us. Uh, but my question is for uh, Robert, Bob Picardo, and when you were playing the doctor, uh, did you have any personal input as Bob Picardo into the name, the naming of your character? Well, the input I had really resulted in the character never getting named. Um, in the in the original Bible, uh, which is the, you know, they, they, they sort of plot out where the show is going to go uh, to, that the writers put together so that they can solicit spec scripts written by, you know, how does a writer write for a show that hasn't premiered yet? He has to be told who the characters are and what the basic story setup is. Um, in any case, in the Bible for Voyager, my character was known as Doc Zimmerman, and he was going to, not just my creator, but my character was going to become Doc Zimmerman. In the pilot episode, I am known as Doc Zimmerman, which means that by a few episodes in, that was the name I was going to, to get. And right before we went on the air, we'd already shot, I don't know, five, six episodes. There was an episode we shot called Eye of the Needle. And the end of the episode was I turned to, uh, I don't know if it's Janeway or Kess. I think it's Kess. And I say, I should like to have a name. And there's this big dramatic pushing on my face. Mm, you know, this sort of very touching moment about the character's entitlement. Uh, he's an artificial intelligence, but he's, he already wants, he wants to have an, a name rather than simply be called the EMH. He wants to individuate as a piece of technology. Very dramatic moment. So I went to our producer, Rick Berman. I think we were at the screening of Star Trek Generations, the crossover movie, all of our cast was invited. And I said to Rick, before the movie started, I said, uh, are you gonna list me in the opening credits as Doc Zimmerman? And he said, yes. And I said, well, we're doing, we just shot an episode, uh, we, uh, we just did, uh, uh, f finished on an episode where my character asks permission to have a name. It's quite a dramatic moment and all that. I said, if we list me from the pilot on as Doc Zimmerman, aren't we kind of killing the surprise? I mean, aren't we sort of telling the audience that I'm, that's the name I'm gonna pick? And he said, you're right. So they changed the opening credits, and instead of Doc Zimmerman, my character was listed after the pilot, in, in, the, in episode one after the pilot, as the doctor. And in that moment, I unwittingly ripped off 50 years of British television. <laughs> I, hadn't, I, I didn't know about, Do I didn't know that Doctor Who, I'd heard of it, but I'd never seen it. I didn't know he was called the Doctor. And, uh, and therefore, there were a lot of Whovians, <laughs> I guess, who were upset that we were, we were appropriating that, uh, that title. But uh, it was completely, I mean, I'm sure our producers knew it, but I had no idea. I was just looking from the logic of my character's point of view. Okay, we've got a question. Tell us where you're from and uh, what your question is. I'm from Los Angeles. Uh, first question, uh, I have two questions. One is um, for both of them for Bob. Um, have you been invited to SpaceX? And the second one is for First Contact, the insertion of the EMH, was that planned or ad-libbed or ad-hogged or were you invited or how did that come up? Um, I, all right, uh, I have been to SpaceX. I am going to go again. I was there for Buzz Aldrin's 80th birthday and Buzz sadly was sick that day. <laughs> 
so he wasn't able to come to his own birthday party. So we had it without him. But uh, we got an incredible tour of SpaceX. I get to see, the Planetary Society, I get to do some really cool stuff, which I'm deeply grateful for and meet really cool people. Um, and I've been on stage because of Star Trek with five guys who walked on the moon at the 30th anniversary of Star Trek. And so as the make-believe guys, because of the inspirational connection between NASA and Star Trek, we, the simply actors who happen to be on a science fiction series, have these incredible opportunities to meet the real heroes that, that a show like ours is based on, the people that are really doing the exploration. I don't just mean the astronauts, I mean the, uh, all of the amazing engineers and mission planners and, uh, uh, that work at, uh, at the various NASA facilities like Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California that I've been to a million times. So those are the real heroes. And for us to get to meet them is just an... Uh, it's, and, and for them to know who we are and recognize the fact that Star Trek has inspired either them or others of their colleagues is a, is a tremendous sense of... Uh, of satisfaction to me. Um, the other thing, how I ended up in, in the movie, I'll tell you as briefly as I can. Um, I knew that they had destroyed uh, the Enterprise at the end of Generations, so I reasoned that they were gonna be, there was gonna be a brand new Enterprise in First Contact. Didn't know anything about what the plot was. Uh, we had just started, you know, we were in season two of Voyager, I guess. I went into Rick Berman's office to talk about possibly directing our show in the future. And on my way out, I said, are you going to have a new Enterprise? I know you're doing the next Star Trek movie. Will there be a new Enterprise? He said, yes, of course. I said, well, I don't understand something. I said, why does the Voyager have more advanced technology than your flagship, the Enterprise? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, how come we have this emergency medical hologram thing and they don't have one on the end? I said, I'm not trying to pad my part. I'm just looking out for your logic here. And he smiled and he said, well, why would they why would they all look alike? I said, why wouldn't they look alike? I said, it's, it's a first generation of a new technology. It'd be like a popular screensaver. Everybody had the same one, you know? And he smiled and said, that's a very interesting idea. Okay. A week or two later, Ron Moore, who was co-writing the script with Brandon Braga, I was having dinner with him and his then wife. And uh, <clears throat> I said to him, you're writing a new Star Trek movie. And he said, yes. I said, you know, I don't understand something. <laughs> I did the whole thing again, and Ron Moore said, at the end, that's a very interesting idea. A week or two later, I'm in Brandon Braga's office, and we're talking about something. And we're, you know, we're chatting, and I said, um, I said you, you and Ron are writing the new Star Trek movie. He said, yeah, I said, I said, you know, I don't understand something. <laughs> did the whole thing again, and he ends by going, hmm, that's a very interesting idea. Okay, now like a month or so goes by, Jonathan Frakes calls me in my trailer between shots on Voyager, and he says, I want to thank you for helping me get to direct uh, my first movie. Uh, they're gonna, they approved me to direct First Contact. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we showed them the episode, the first episode I directed on Voyager that featured you beginning to end. I, I, it called Projections, where the doctor is led to believe by Barclay that, the do, that he is the only real thing on Voyager and everyone else is a hologram. I said, Jonathan, it's very kind of you to credit me but I'm sure you got it entirely on your own. Congratulations, I'm really happy for you. But you know, I don't understand something. <laughs> I did the whole damn thing again, and Frakes, Frakes said, you know, that, that's, that's very interesting. It's a very, it's a very interesting idea. A month later, Rick Berman calls me in my trailer and says, we have decided to put 
the EMH in the new Star Trek movie. And I said, that's a very interesting idea. Oh, fantastic. I have a question up here. Up One of here. my great regrets in life is not being able to schmooze like Bob does. <laughs> Although I'm schmoozing, I was actually planting in that movie a seed. Too. <laughs> it's planting a seed. Yeah. <laughs> There's a question on the top deck. Yes. Let's hear it. Hi. Um, Where are I'm, you from? I'm from Chile, but we live in Utah. Oh, I met you yesterday. Yes, you took my. You picture. had a great T-shirt on. Thank you. All right. Um, First of all, I'm so honored to be asking a question to you both. I love you both. Uh, but my question is for Mr. Phillips. Um, but as Neelix, as a morale officer, um, in every day when we're struggling or in our darkest moments, where would the morale officer tap into to get all this positive? Um, where do you think we should go in ourselves to get that? Um, well, uh, I think the first thing is not to consent to hopelessness, um, and, uh, despair. And, uh, that's not always easy to do, but you need to rely on, uh, your friends and your loved ones um, and share your doubts and your fears. Because once you, you do that, you, you shine a light on them. Otherwise, they stay secret and hidden and they grow with the fear and the anxiety around it grows. But if you can just trust that uh, by sharing your problems with other people, you'll probably um, see a way uh, to move on uh, we were always taught as kids, I, I, I had a Jesuit education, and they told us that the, the sin God hated the most was consenting to despair. So I think that, you know, you, you, you share your problems, you, you bring them out of the, of, of the closet uh, with people that you trust, you know, and, um, and know that uh, this too shall pass, you know, and uh, things, things have a way of getting better if you, if you show up with, uh, with the right attitude. Um, there's a guy... Um, Victor Frankl, who wrote an amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning. And Victor Frankl was in a, in a concentration camp and uh, suffered all, the, all of what that entailed, which is so horrific we can't even begin to imagine it. But he, he, he writes in the book, A Search for Meaning, he says, they can take everything they want from me, but they can't take my attitude. You know, and that means the way I look at things. Um, so, I, I, I mean, it's, this is just a lot of optimistic bullshit in some ways, but um, it, it also has import for me. So that's my answer to your question. Okay, we've got time for maybe just a few more. Uh, question over here, tell us where you're from. Staten Island, New York. From Staten Island, New York. Here you okay, thank you both for being here. My question is, how did it come about that a holographic doctor would teach a recovering bug to regain her humanity. Whose idea was that and how did that get worked into it? Um, a holographic doctor would, would do what with his boss? <laughs> Borg, Borg, not boss. With the Borg, oh, 
with she's, seven of I nine. I think she's suggesting that of all the people on Voyager, why would the holographic doctor be the right. one to teach seven of nine how to By become By telling more human? this, answering your question, I don't want to create the impression that I was constantly giving the writers ideas. That's not the case. <laughs> I constantly had ideas. I constantly shared them, and they picked and cho- they, they they would listen very politely because they like. I honestly, it's hard to write 25 episodes a season of a franchise that's at that point already 30 some years old. So I've always found that writers, uh, if if actors make a positive suggestion that is character based and story based. They'll listen to you. Whether they do it or not, they might say, oh, that's very interesting, but you know, we've already done something on Deep Space Nine that's like that. So some of the, uh, many of the things I suggested for the Doctor didn't happen, but I did suggest the Doctor was an opera fan, and then a year later it happened. I, I had forgotten about it. I suggested a number of things that, when it was, that they ended up liking and using, but the, the most successful suggestion I think I made was uh, when Kess was leaving the show, I went in and spoke to Brandon Braga and said, I'm concerned because Kess has been the doctor's sounding board. She has been, even though he's mentoring her in medicine, she is really mentoring him in his developing humanity. The only one the doctor really reveals another side of himself to, once she's gone, I'm afraid I'll go back to just being a windbag and a joke because I don't have someone to confess to. And Brandon said, well, we have a new character, Seven of Nine, coming, why don't you... Uh, think of a way the doctor can relate to her. And I, when I first saw Jerry Ryan, I could think of a way anyone would like to <laughs> relate to her, but it didn't really seem appropriate for a man of my age. But I thought about it and I said, I had a, an insight. I went back to Brandon and said, okay, what if we turn the relationship the doctor had with Kess around and make the doctor the mentor? The doctor, how arrogant... And, and how wonderfully arrogant for the doctor to think he's a better teacher in how to be human than a human. If he thinks he understands humanity more than a real human, and he's going to mentor Seven in reclaiming our humanity, and we would literally have um, uh, role-playing exercises where I would assign her a particular role so that she could learn how to behave appropriately in that social situation. And that got me four years of wonderful scenes with Jerry Ryan. For, for which I'm deeply grateful. I used to... I did the exact opposite. I, I hated the makeup so much that I used to go over to the writer's office and say, wouldn't it be great if Neelix wasn't in this scene? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well listen, I've got, I've got bad news and I've got good news. The bad news is that we're all out of time. But the good news is that you'll be able to see uh, Bob later today with uh, Colonel Rick Searfoss, and you'll be able to see Ethan's show again on Friday night. So how about a big round of applause for our two. And don't forget to pick up the cards here that Bob has laid out for the Planetary Society. Thank you so much. A big round of applause for Ethan Phillips. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you. Always make it easy. Thank you, Jordan. Beautiful job. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? 
Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.